Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another episode of What the Politics. I'm Emily here, and I have Victoria as well. And moving forward off of last week's election, the 2020 presidential election, we want to start talking about building relationships across the aisle, especially as we now transition parties into the White House. A new party will be taking over the White House for the next four years. So we're going to talk about building those relationships across the aisle. And I'm going to let Victoria introduce our special guest for today as well. So we're going to set the scene for a second for this conversation. We just came out of one of the most divisive elections, at least in Emily and I's lifetime. I'm not sure about your lifetime, but at least in our lifetime. And the goal now as a country is to move forward. And our guest today is uh, Major Garrett, Chief Washington Correspondent for CBS News. And Major, I want to thank you for joining us today after the hectic last week I'm sure you've had. And I don't want to take up too much of your time, but before we get into our questions, can you tell our audience your background as a journalist? Sure. I've been a professional journalist since 1984. I started my career as a newspaper reporter in Amarillo, Texas. I covered police news for two years. I then moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, and I worked for the Las Vegas Review Journal, where I also covered police news and some government and politics news. I was there for two years and then went to the Houston Post, a paper that still existed, obviously, when it hired me. No longer exists, but at the time it was the 14th largest newspaper in the country, and I covered general assignment news, which tended to be things of a disastrous nature, uh, plane crashes, hurricanes, mass murders, and the like, uh, all of which I did over a two-year career in Houston. Then I got to Washington in 1990, continued my newspaper career, uh, went to work at the Washington Times, was there for seven years, then I wrote two books. Went to work for U.S. News and World Report. Then I transitioned to television at CNN in the year 2000. Was there for two and a half years, Fox eight years, and I've been at CBS since uh, 2012. So most of my career has been in Washington. And if you were to subdivide it into two categories, about 15 years in what would be regarded as center-right newsrooms and 15 years in what you would be regarding as a center-left newsroom. And I think the exposure to different perspectives and different kinds of editorial conversations has made me a better journalist. And so let's get into those transitions from center-right to center-left newsrooms. When you first started, did you find that when you transitioned between those uh, two different types of newsrooms, was it difficult to keep up the relationships that you've built? It was not. And when I first got to Washington, I had no relationships, none. I mean, I didn't know a soul, and I'd never covered government on a day-to-day -day basis. I'd never even covered a city council as a beat anywhere in my career. I was interested in politics. I read about it as a hobby, but I had never covered it as a beat. Most reporters who come to Washington, and certainly at that era, 1990, arrived having covered and been a very successful reporter covering state legislatures, or at minimum, a large city council or a large, powerful mayor's office. I hadn't had any of that experience at all. 
So I knew no one, and I knew next to nothing about Congress. It's many Byzantine ways. It's very specialized language. I knew a good, a little bit, a sort of a novice appreciation of American politics, but there's no politics quite like federal legislative politics. Uh, and I was a complete novice. And so I spent the first two and a half, three years just trying to learn the ropes. And when I covered my first presidential campaign in 1992, I was a complete babe in the woods on that, completely getting spun around and turned in different directions. I didn't know which end was up. It just takes time. Mm-hmm. And when I, but once I got my feet underneath me and began to establish not only context but credibility, I never had any problem going from one newsroom to the next because people had read or watched what I'd done, knew what it was about, knew what the kind of ethics and approach I brought to journalism. Mm-hmm. They knew to be on guard. They knew I was no pushover. They knew I was aggressive and curious and did my reading and did my research, but it didn't make any difference. They didn't think, oh, there's this left, left-wing left hack or this right-wing hack coming at me. It was just, oh, there's Major. Mm-hmm. And do you think when you first entered D.C. that your lack of experience in a weird way helped you become a better journalist? Mm. Well, I don't know. I've thought a lot about that. I, I think in life sometimes... Your, your courage is a byproduct of your stupidity. <laughs> you just don't know what you're getting yourself into, and you want to do it so badly, and you're so uh, aggressive, and you're so energized, and so willing to take on the challenge that you don't even think for a moment about how hard it might be. Um, I will say that about my particular brand of courage in 1990, um, because that first year was so humbling. It was more than humbling. It was crushing a lot of times. Um, I'd read the next, I'd read the newspaper in the morning, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and New York Times, and, and just realized that I'd missed everything. And then my, the, my stories were a joke and they just weren't any good. And that was hard to deal with, but there's only one way to react to that. You got to fight through it. Definitely. And, and Victoria had asked, you know, if you had lost any relationships in the transitions between networks, did you lose any viewers, any fans that reached out to you and were like, I can't believe, you know, you're going from Fox to CBS or, or something similar. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, during the 2016 campaign, um, I was getting on a flight from St. Louis. I can't remember where we were going, but I distinctly remember being in uh, St. Louis airport. And I'm standing online to get onto the plane. And uh, the woman who was at the counter asked me if I was Major Garrett. And I said, yes. She said, you used to work at Fox, didn't you? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, how could you be a traitor? Mm. And I thought to my, she said, you left. And I said, yes, ma'am, I left. I worked for CBS. Now, how? And she asked, how could you be a traitor? And I just thought to myself, that's a heavyweight word. Yeah. That is not a new value neutral word. That's, that's a word that's got very specific meaning and, mm-hmm. and power behind it. And I, I, I think I, I have a memory of kind of taking a half a step back. I had no response to her. I just said, well, uh, ma'am, I'm sorry you feel that way, uh, but um, can I get on the plane? (laughs) Right. That's so interesting. Do you think, you know, what do you think is the reasoning behind the fact that viewers seem more, you know, affect, I guess, they they take it more personally when, when 
they see people switching networks or seeing people transitioning into, you know, different political parties or um, different aspects of, of this career. So how do you think that is that you kind of that they were a little more hateful, it seems like, than the actual networks that you were transitioning to? Right. The networks, you no, know, obviously there, there was no issue there. Um, and I, I would just say this, um, the, the audiences that, uh, I've experienced over my career, particularly in television, develop, uh, for their own reasons, a kind of personal relationship with those who they see bringing them the news. Right. And that personal relationship feels part of a kind of team orientation that they have not only to politics, but to news itself. I think that's true for those people who I've watched and I know who work at MSNBC and Mm -hmm. for people who I know and still work at Fox or did work at Fox. And that's part of the kind of team mentality that we've brought to our political discourse, that it's, like a real team, like my team can do no wrong. I'm just going to cheer for my team no matter what. And if you leave the team, if you become like a free agent or you go to another team, it's like, you know, do Red Sox fans like it if someone leaves the Red Sox and goes to play for the Yankees or someone leaves the Celtics to go play for the Lakers? Um, They don't, and they hold it against you, and they feel a personal affront that something that you're telling them something that's negative when I'm not, I'm just getting a better job, which if I, if we ever had a chance to have this conversation, I would say to the person, would you mind if I, if you got a better job? I mean, would, would I have the right to tell you that you've done something wrong if for your life and for your career, you got a better job? Right. No. So why do you hang that on me? And so even though these moves are in a sense a better job for your career and and for who you for your reputation and who you want to be as a person it's not just the job is it no not for you no it's a responsibility it's a great responsibility and the great blessing of my life is that as a 13 year old kid in San Diego uh, with not one journalist in any direction in my family without anyone I knew in the business without any connection to it at all other than my hunger to do it i've been able to live not only every dream i had at that time but beyond and that's a remarkable thing to have in life and i think about it all the time i am happy about it all the time but i know that one of the reasons i'm still able to do it is because i take the core responsibilities of it and the the mandatory requirements of it, which means accuracy, curiosity, fairness, deliberateness, caution, seriously. And that's what's kept me around. And so let's let's kind of go through, navigate your career for a second. You started at a local level and then ended up, of course, working for CBS Network right now. Mm-hmm. Do you find that politics, I know that you covered um, Washington, or the first time that you went to Washington was the first time you covered politics. But at a local level, at a federal level, is it more polarizing when you cover a presidential election versus the more kind of like city council, local politics? Sure. And, and you know, we were a less polarized country in 1984 when I started living in cities and covering even just general news. I mean, let's say, for example, I did what I did. I was a police reporter. Well, when you cover a 
police department, you cover the city government. They're related, and you pay attention to who the mayor is and who the city council members are. Even though you don't cover the city council meeting, you know that they control the city police department's budget, and so you're aware of all these sorts of things. And there's one component to this that will sound maybe hyper-focused on journalism, but I think it's really true for the broad population. It's also true in journalism. Local newsrooms, when I started my career, were very vibrant in all cities in our country. And by vibrant, I'll give you a quick statistic. When I lived in Amarillo, it's about 160,000 population. There was a morning newspaper and an afternoon newspaper with separate newsrooms serving both papers. And the combined circulation of those two newspapers was about forty-five to 50,000. And the newsroom was about 45 or 60 employees, give or take. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Amarillo now has a population well over 200,000, about 210,000. The Amarillo Globe News, the paper I started at in 1984, has five employees now. Mm-hmm. Five. With 60,000 more people living in the community. Mm-hmm. As compared to a newsroom of 50 to 60 when I was there. What does that mean? That means there's nobody there covering the city council on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis. There's no one there covering the Board of Education. There's no one covering the basic fundamentals of city government. What is the result of that? A, you don't know what's going on. B, the only politics you then are exposed to are the intense, loud, noisy, partisan politics of the nation. And suddenly everything at your local level feels just as hyper-partisan as everything at the national level because there's no mediating coverage of what's actually happening in your community. It may sound self-serving, but we lose a great number of things in our communities when there are not reporters around to cover the basic functionality of life in a city or community. Why do you think that people in the United States are more invested in following the federal kind of government than their local communities, than what's going on within their own city governments? Well, it's harder to see because of the reason I just mentioned. There's much less local news coverage, much, much less local news coverage. And trust me, I know, I know this because I lived in this world. Good TV stations read the local newspaper. That's how they got a lead on a lot of their stories. And they served one another. But more often than not, the local TV station vectored its news coverage the next morning off what was in the morning's newspaper. Well, guess what? Well, the morning's newspaper doesn't have any news in it then the local TV station doesn't have as much to go on. And they don't have as many reporters. Their resources are taxed just as the local newspapers are. They're smaller, diminished, less ambitious. So local journalism just itself has receded. Okay, then you have the preponderance of social media, which tends to be nationalized, not localized. You have the cable networks, which are nationalized, not localized. And you also have that which someone in your friend group across the country hears that it is a national issue, it percolates through your news feed or your arc of friends amplifying something that's national, not local. All these things tend to create a hotter pot of controversy around national issues that really have on an hour-by-hour and day-by-day basis, very little to do with the actual life you lead and very little that's in front of you about why the road that you think should be fixed in your neighborhood isn't fixed or why the trash doesn't get picked up 
or why the local hospital doesn't have enough beds or whatever. Mm-hmm. There are lots of local issues that people think about but don't see discussed because there's no one covering the discussion. That's a big problem. When you're reaching across the aisle, when you're trying to build these relationships, do you think that us as mass media are partly responsible for this extreme polarization, the, the, you know, the fact that we have to rebuild this bridge um, within politics? And do you think that it's also our responsibility to kind of fix that at the end of the day? Or, or what do you think is that solution? Well, it's a complicated question with a very long answer, but let me just try to shorten it. There's, one, there's a couple of tendencies that the mass media have that work against our better interests and make some of these problems worse. Example one, media loves conflict. Well, bipartisan solutions are not based on conflict. They're based on people giving in and accepting something less than they absolutely demand. And we spend less time paying attention to the good functioning of government. We spend a lot of time, for obvious reasons, on things that go wrong. Now, look, I'm, I'm a news person. I've been in the news business my entire life. News is, by definition, new and different. So if government is screwing something up and wasting taxpayer dollars or doing something corruptly, that's news, by definition. And by no understanding of what news is, do you say, well, we shouldn't cover that because I'll make people unhappy. Wrong. But I do think there are times when we lazily indulge ourselves in the conflict of politics as sport and don't say to ourselves, okay, that's just another performative argument. Let's go over here because we've seen a, we've seen a hundred performative arguments. There's really nothing new going on here. Let's set that aside. Let's not use that uh, as sport for our viewers or our readers. Let's go over here and find something that either is working or that could work a little bit better, but is on the right track and something's actually getting done to make people's lives better. Functionality, explanatory journalism is something I've begun to gravitate toward later in my career. I'm doing it right now through two different podcasts I have. And I'm really energized by the possibilities of explanatory journalism that explains to people why things are, what were some of the things that made them the way they currently are, and what might we think about to make them better. I think journalism spent more time on that and didn't assume that that's boring and nobody's going to watch it, that we would be contributing in a more positive way to our overall political conversation. Because I do think there are tendencies because conflict sells and, oh, people are angry. People are, there's controversy, mm-hmm. one of the laziest words in all of journalism. <laughs> I hate that word so much, you can't even know. Mm-hmm. It's such a lazy word. Tell people, what, tell people what's happening. Let them decide if it's controversial or not. But anyway, um, <laughs> we fall back on that. And because it's lazy, oh, we're divided. Well, okay, what is it that we're divided about? Let's take a little bit deeper. There are times when the shallowness of our day-to-day political conversation, I think, contributes to some of it. It's not the main cause, but it doesn't help. Do you think that there's a, a hunger for this ex, ex- how did you say explanatory journalism? I hope so. I, you know, I, I think in the podcast world there is. Um, and I've come around to that world. I was a bit of a late adopter, but I've been doing it now for three years. I have one podcast I've done for two years and another one I just launched this year. And uh, the audience seems to like it quite a bit. And 
Um, there's something so retro about podcasts, so unbelievably right. It's radio, okay? It's a highly produced radio, but it's still radio, you know? And, and for people who want something to learn from on a walk, doing their dishes, doing some errands around the house or in the neighborhood, going for a run on the, some kind of elliptical or the Peloton or whatever, it's a getaway, and it's an informative getaway, and it's an immersive experience. And the financial barriers of entry are low, meaning basically you just need a laptop, a couple of microphones, and good Wi-Fi, and the ability to get guests. Now, not everyone can get guests. That's a big barrier to entry. So those people who have said, I'm going to make a podcast and become a star, well, they're having a little bit of trouble. But for me, because I've done this for so long and because of the reputation I've built, I have a low level of convening authority. I can make calls and get people to participate, particularly because podcasts are less intrusive than television and uh, bright lights and cameras and all that stuff. So I think that, that in this world of lots of different media consumed in lots of different ways at lots of different times across audiences, podcasts are ways to create a little bit of connected tissue. And I'm excited about the possibilities there. Mm-hmm. I do want to see, as someone who has been in the business for a number of years, covering, going from cities as small, well, as I say Amarillo is small because I'm from Dallas, but as small as Amarillo. Yeah, see, yeah definitely, definitely a small town. Oh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. No insult. No, no insult there. Yeah. Um, all the way up to the the federal level. What? How, how do you see journalism in the future? Are you optimistic about where we're going as a country, and whether or not we can build a bridge between the divisions that our recent election has only really shown us? So uh, I am optimistic about journalism because so many people like you. My son, uh, who's a reporter now, uh, quite to my surprise, I think quite to his surprise, um, but I'm very involved in my alma mater, the University of Missouri, the best school of journalism in the country and the first school of journalism in the world. That's not me saying it. Everyone who rates them says that. So it's true. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not, as, as, my, as my journalism professor at University of Missouri, Hal Lister, used to say, uh, he's deceased now, but he was one of my greatest mentors. Uh, that's not just a fact. That's a true fact. Um, <laughs> so many journalists in your generation are hungry and energized, and they want to see the world. They want to discuss the world. They want to report on the world. They want to reveal the world. That's the essence of journalism. Journalism is based on curiosity. And it's based on a hunger to say, I see something in front of me. I'm curious why it is, and I want to explain to the public why they might not want to keep it the way it is. That's the essence of it. It's not telling people what to do or what to think or taking on some partisan uniform. It's saying, here's the world. Are you satisfied with it? And if you're not, what are you going to do about it? That's the essence of it. Mm -hmm. And I sense that energy and curiosity and dynamism in your generation so strongly. So that's my number one springboard of optimism. Number two, you can't get rid of us, okay? You can't. Because mm-hmm. everyone, every day, wants to, wakes up saying the same thing. What's going on? 
What's going on? Mm -hmm. You say it to your friends. You say it to your family. What's going on? Well, guess what? There are a certain number of people whose daily diligent work is to answer that question for you. And you can't get rid of us. Mm -hmm. You may disdain us. I may call us phony or fake, but you can't get rid of us. Because every day you ask the same question. <laughs> What's going on? We're there to answer that. Mm -hmm. And one last point I'll say on that. All of this will be better and all of this will be more optimistic as far as its future when we stop confusing two things. Content is not journalism. And journalism is not content. Mm. Content is anything. Journalism is not anything. Journalism is specific. It is grounded in truth. It is grounded in facts. It is grounded in curiosity. It's grounded in revelations about the world we live in. Content doesn't aspire to any of those things. It may achieve them. It doesn't need them. Content's anything. A cat video is not journalism. A music video is not journalism. It's entertaining. It, 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 it occupies your space. It makes you happy. A meme is not journalism. A meme can have a journalistic component, but it's not journalism. And we've got to stop confusing the two. And my industry would do well to also stop confusing the two. Right. Because we churn out a lot of things because we need more content on the page. No. You know what we need on the page? More journalism. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, you've definitely inspired Emily and I, <laughs> especially after this, this entire past week. But I want to thank you for, for joining us. You know, best of luck to you and everything that you do because it's, it's a crazy world out there. Keep in touch. If I can help you, I will. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of What the Politics with Emily and myself, Victoria. This was an amazing conversation that I believe really rejuvenated Emily and I as journalists. And I hope for you as the listener that it gave you some sort of sense that there is a strong ethical foundation for all of us as journalists. And what we do for you, the listener, the viewer, the audience, is really an honor and a privilege. So thank you for listening. And as always, you can listen to What the Politics every Tuesday on Apple and Spotify podcasts.